Subscribe to The Spectator this Christmas and get the next 12 weeks of print and online access as well as a bottle of Paul Roger champagne, all for just £12. This offer is available in the UK only. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Santa to subscribe. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? Over the last few hundred years, China has had a difficult and complicated relationship with foreigners. On the one hand, foreigners added to the country's intellectual richness by introducing Western philosophy and science, and on the other, these contributions often came accompanied by guns and gunboats. Today's China is still a very homogenous place. Out of a country of 1.4 billion, there are fewer than 1 million non-Chinese nationals living there. Out of a country of 1.4 billion, there are fewer than 1 million foreigners living there. So what is it like to try to make China one's home if you were British or anything else? I spoke to two long-time China hands in a discussion about identity, history and belonging. They are Mark Kitto, who's a writer and actor who lived in China for 16 years, setting up two businesses in succession there, but now back living in Norfolk. And Alec Ash. You might know his 2016 book Wish Lanterns, all about Chinese millennials. He moved to China around the time that Mark left in 2012 and has just moved back to the UK after a decade there. I wanted to find out from them what it was like to be foreign in China, given the country's complicated history with Brits and other foreigners, and whether the Chinese identity itself is particularly hard to penetrate. In the last few years, at least anecdotally, I also feel that there has been an exodus of foreigners uh, leaving China, not least because of zero Covid. Though it's worth saying, of course, that in this discussion, given that Alec and Mark have both left, perhaps their perspectives don't represent those who continue to live in China. This is a somewhat reflective episode where we share our respective notes and observations on these big topics, and it'll be the last episode of the year. Chinese Whispers will be back in the new year. It's worth noting too that we recorded before the easing up of zero COVID that we've seen in recent weeks, and before the nationwide protests against lockdown at the end of November. I started by asking Alec to give us a bit of background on the time that he spent in China. Thank you very much for having me on your pod, which I love. I first went to China fresh out of university in 2007 to do some uh, teaching in the hills of western Qinghai province. And then I went back in 2008 for two years of language study at uh, Beijing University. And that was sort of the the zenith, really, of the sort of exciting times. Everyone was looking at China. It was opening up. Everyone thought there might be a color revolution or something, rather naively. And I then went back in 2012 and was there continuously for the last uh, 10 years, writing books and articles about China. And it turns out that it sort of went the other direction and has become more sort of authoritarian and illiberal. But Really, the reason why I went was because it was and remains, I think, such a, a vibrant and sort of protean and swiftly changing country that, mm. you know, for a, a young man and a fresh graduate, go East young man sort of vibe, which I, I'm sure was the same with Mark back in the 90s. Mark, tell us mm. about your respective experience. Well, just to, to set the perspective, we can say that I first went to China as a student in the year that Alec was born. <laughs> so I'm... Um, 
I wasn't going to age you, Mark. I am, I am the old China hat of, the, of your, <laughs> your set-up this afternoon. The more experienced, the wiser. <laughs> yes. I don't know about that. But kind of similar. For me, it was an interest in languages, the Far East, and that Deng Xiaoping had just said that he was opening up China. And it sounded like it was a place to go for an adventure. It was all going to be new and exciting. And I wanted to, I hoped that I could build a sort of life and career over Mm. there. And in 86, I, as a student at the Beijing Language Institute, I definitely fell in love with China. Uh, Then came home to do my finals. We walked out of our exam halls in the middle of June 1989. And so we all thought, well, that's a bit of a waste of four years. We'll never go back. But we did go back, many of us. And the way I sometimes describe it is that pre-89, there was a fantastic optimism and excitement about what might Mm. happen in China as it sort of shook off the really strict communist rules that it had been living under and the cultural revolution was over and all that and everything was going to get better when I went back eventually in 96 to live and work there was a similar sort of optimism but it wasn't everything's going to get better it's everyone's going to get richer Mm -hmm. which wasn't you know too objectionable but it was definitely a different atmosphere or underlying feeling, but it was still very positive. Mm. And then things, yes, have changed. Yes. And, and just to riff off that, because I find it always interesting how there are these cycles of China, as there always have been, but really ever since sort of 49, there's been cycles of feng and shou, right? Tightening and loosening up. And we as foreigners living in China, migrants in China get swept along with these cycles, these waves, mm-hmm. as sort of flies on the beast's back. And so, in a sense, sort of ever has it been thus. There was the excitement of the 80s, followed by uh, tightening up in the early 90s. And as with me in 2008, I'm this Olympic wave of foreigners who came. That was such an exciting time, and it seemed to be opening up. And so that the waves continue, and yeah. we continue to attempt to surf them. Lovely analogy. I I just wondered how objective these waves are, because, Mark, by that point, you were already, I feel, getting disillusioned with China. By 2008? Yeah. Oh, yes, the the Chinese Olympics, not the Beijing Olympics. They were known as the Chinese Olympics by China. They were a fantastic propaganda Mm. opportunity. I would say, rather than if you were suggesting that it was a sort of an opening up period when they were welcoming in people for the Olympics, it was, in fact, the opposite. I had friends who could not get visas to China because it was the Olympics. Mm. They had satisfied the numbers that they wanted to sort of fill the camera frames behind the, you know, in the the shots of the events, and particularly my own commercial ventures, which had ended shortly before that. I mean, the the magazines that I used to run. So you founded magazines, didn't you? You Yes, I beg your pardon. Yes, I skipped a bit. I lost them to a government takeover in 2004. Well, it's a good idea to found a media source in China. Please, let's not go that way. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I thought you said I was wise. Um, (laughs) Definitely that wasn't. But they were taken over again for the Olympics because during the Olympics, everything had to be Chinese. 
IKEA became Chinese when they furnished the Olympic Village. I think it was the beginning of the end or the beginning of this cycle of tightening because it sort of, as a sort of fresh-faced young China watcher, it felt like the Olympics was this sort of great moment and coming out party, to use that well-worn cliche. And then in hindsight, it turns out that that was the moment when things really started to tighten up. And they're much, just less welcoming. It's been a steady decline of less and less welcoming to outside influence, outside business. And if that was the zenith, it's now reached its nadir, I think. Yeah, and, and Alec, obviously, you've lived through China in the last three years, something that Mark and I haven't. Mm. You know, norm, in normal times, I would go back to China very often, but I haven't been since 2019 for obvious reasons, the pandemic. And you have lived through that period in China. So tell us about that, that period of closing up. The one that we're currently living through, we're seeing through social media and through reports now. Well, so I left China less than a month ago, and I'm still readjusting to this bizarre land of the face maskless where all of the drivers stop for you and no one honks and so it's rather weird because as you said the last three years I I wasn't able to leave China I was actually out in the countryside in this mountain village of southwest China Yunnan province um, when the pandemic struck and it turned out to be a wonderful place for for my sort of sequestration but uh, in the meantime sort of China went a little bit crazy in this mm. last year. And so on my way out through Beijing, where I lived for nine years before that, it's really become this absolutely bizarre sort of state of affairs where every, it feels like everyone has Stockholm syndrome. And every three days you have to get a nucleic acid test. Everyone is in masks and you are barked at if you take it down a little bit. It's also the first time across the span of 15 years that I've been living in and coming to China, the first time that I felt actual popular disease and discontent with government policy and among the elites, disease about the, the coronation of Xi Jinping for his third term. So China's in a very funny place right now, a very odd place, like nothing I'd seen before. And this zero COVID policy among the cities and those it affects is very unpopular. Mm. But I was sort of out in out in the sticks, <laughs> where it didn't sort of really reach us. Oh no, you did write I had this, a great um, old time. Write this article, which I'm sure annoyed a lot of people, where you said that you hadn't taken a COVID test at all in throughout the whole <laughs> pandemic yeah. until very recently, having leaving China. I just didn't leave my village. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when it comes to, I mean, the natural question to what you've just said is: Is that going to come ahead at all? Do you think people are fed up with zero COVID enough that anything would happen? I mean, that is the obvious um, question. I don't, I didn't feel or see any particular appetite or possibility, more importantly, for widespread protest. It is interesting that the discontent, the grumblings have spilled over into protests like like the Satong Chao and the bridge um, unfurling of the banner and the protests in the Foxconn factory and so on, and Lhasa and Hangzhou and everywhere. So it is it is spilling over, but I see no indication that it will spill over into a more widespread or organized protest. I, mm. I think that's just not possible with the level of restriction and social control there is right now. Mark, you've seen China since 1986, really. Do you buy this theory of Fang Shou that Alec has just mentioned, you know, this theory that people in China talk about of opening up and closing and just almost cycles of opening and closing? Do you buy that? Because I think what we're seeing at the moment is a closing period. Is it going to open again <laughs> without something drastic happening? Or maybe do you need something drastic to happen? The way Alec described it, 
you made it sound like a sort of fairly regular thing, almost sort of seasonal. <laughs> well, the seasons I mean, of decades. Yeah, yes. I think it's a longer process. I think the underlying trend is a closing. I think ever since, well, now I've got to put myself in a position where I've got to pick a date. Certainly, I mean, we're talking about foreigners in China here. So I think once they had reached the point where they thought, right, we have got enough foreigners here, we've got enough from them, we've mm. got enough engagement foreigners, we now we can do it our way. I think that is the big wave, as it were, or the big turning point. And I would put that sort of about, about the time of the Olympics, actually, coincidentally, or a little bit later, perhaps. Mm. And so it was a straightforward increase, let's say, in opening and welcoming, and now it is going to be consistently decrease and restrictions certainly for the next 10 years surely i think until it all gets messed up i mean yes i absolutely agree with all of that and i think that actually you mentioned the pandemic in the last three years and so if this has been the broader trend i think that the coronavirus pandemic has really been the catalyst Mm. that's really affirmed that direction that the country was going in anyway and then there were some factors before the pandemic such as trump and the trade war and china's push to become you know more of an autarky in its Mm -hmm. uh, economy and self-confined and the pandemic really sort of activated i think that trend under the surface which was already happening of let's be more self-sufficient more nationalistic kick out the foreigners and and was really a sort of a gift for that to deepen and continue and and it it also brought out this xenophobia which has always been there under the surface as it is in many cultures and countries but uh, yeah covid really brought that out to the surface is there anything in particular you're thinking about from your personal experience of the last three years because we have had shocking stories of literally state epidemiologists advising people not to touch foreigners oh yes for fear of having (laughs) it was utterly bizarre because just three months after the pandemic struck i took my car out for a little road trip around yunnan province and people were just whispering behind my back, you know, Wai Koren, Wai Xian, the foreigner, dangerous. Because already by then, it was being thought of as a foreign virus. Mm. Um, and the state media were peddling this line that maybe it was brought in from abroad or frozen meats and so on. And so very quickly, um, something which was, you know, a, a virus which originated in China had been morphed in people's imaginations into yet another reason why we should fear mm. outsiders. Just and, like AIDS in the 80s. Mm. Yeah, that was a foreign disease. Mm. Mm. And that's particularly the reason I wanted to bring you guys here together, because, of course, between the two of you, you span 26 years of Chinese history. But also, you know, you are, I think it's fair to say, Sinophiles. You're both fluent Chinese speakers. And my and tones are rubbish, by You've way. committed to the country and the culture in a way that a lot of people don't and never would. But, Mark, when you left China, you wrote this, I think it's quite heartbreaking piece, entitled You'll Never Be Chinese. Can you... Tell us about that. Love to. Um, gosh, it was some time ago now. I was surprised at the reaction to it. I mean, basically, the article, it was, it was the publisher, Prospect Magazine. Am I allowed to say Prospect Magazine? And I did Spectators. tell you to Cindy just avoided, <laughs> avoided saying it. Was, it. <clears throat> magazine, That's allowed. That's why, yeah. it. They chose that title, interestingly. I didn't. I can't remember what I proposed. But what I very simply said in it was I'd woken up from my China dream that I had developed since the 80s. And I was leaving China because you couldn't really build a business there. And you it, had tried? I tried 
twice. Well, once and been burnt very badly. The second time I just basically set up a small business and said, let's leave it like that and let's not grow it. And I knew it was quite precarious still. The environment, especially the sort of social environment, I did not think was very healthy. I think I saw, I can only call it, this obsession with money that Mm. has been sort of, it's the only religion in China. There's no alternative. So it's basically the sort of the moral vacuum that the Communist Party has created. And the final point I had was about the education of my children, which was a no-brainer that I wanted. I was living in the countryside too. I was in a village in the the mountains, and so we were using the local education system, and it was abysmal. But the reaction, well, first of all, it it got incredible coverage. It was translated into Chinese. The People's Daily ran an editorial in response to it. I had all sorts of going on. I had various sort of news crews. I, I've, I left China to travel as the sort of brouhaha kicked up, and I had Reuters filming me leaving Shanghai Airport, thinking I would never come back because I'd blown it. Ah. Um, I then had a film crew filming me when I came back, ah. saying, Good, "Would you believe it? Kiddos actually made it back into China." But it was the the sort of three levels of, of reaction. Where the, first of all, the, the older Chinese friends of mine were offended because I was fairly direct about what was wrong with China and, you know, face and all that sort of thing. And when I spoke to them about it, when it got to the point about the children, they go, oh, why didn't you say? Of course, you know, children's education, that's absolutely the be on and end all. No, you carry on, you know, off you go. The younger Chinese, they were angry with me because they said, why did you hold back? You could have said so much more. We can't. And then the most visceral reaction was from the my favorite word expat community because i was addressing them fairly directly saying you know you're wasting your time here Mm. and they got very upset yes i had quite a lot of pushback on that well you sort of started this trend because i i was just going back to china then i remember reading your piece sort of basically as i was preparing to go back to china and then there's this sort of run of why i'm leaving china pieces so it it was a bit of a meme but it didn't put you off alec clearly no, I was. You're I couldn't, like, I couldn't wait to about? get back. Yeah. And and as we were joking over lunch, perhaps it's just the fate of every sort of foreigner to go live in China that you you know have your exciting decade in the city, then you sort of mm. piss off to the countryside for a few years, and then eventually leave China. So perhaps we have our own cycles separate to the nation. And Mark, I was interested in what something that you mentioned earlier, this idea that if you're a foreigner, you can't criticise China because you're looking from the outside in. And I get this sometimes in my role as a Chinese ethnic person reporting on China outside of the country, sometimes critically. And I get sometimes get Chinese people saying to me, you know, you shouldn't be airing dirty laundry outside. So this, whether it's face or something else, this idea that those who criticise China have to be either Chinese or doing it within China, uh, and anyone else doesn't have the criteria to do so. So frustrating. I used to deal a lot because I was in publishing with government officials, and they would, behind closed doors, I mean, was, we would have some very lively debates. And I was always being, often being told, you know, Mark, you don't understand China, to which I would say, no, hang on a second, because I've got the objective <laughs> point. I actually understand it better than you. Mm. And I think there's a case for that. Travel writing, we mentioned earlier on, you know, travel writers can see things objectively that people can't themselves sometimes. It's as simple as that. And also on the, on the face thing, I would be told by these government officials, no, this is China, you have to give us face. And you must do things the Chinese way. I say, well, do you think we don't have face? Do you think you know, we wouldn't like a little bit of respect? And they would really stop them in their tracks. They go, oh, 
You might, you might have a point there. And you have a play at the moment, a one-man play, yes. which is very fun, and I've seen it, and I can highly recommend. Thank but you it's so much. it's it's an interesting historical parallel because it's set in a time when foreigners in China also played a very interesting, controversial, rewarding oh, yes. role. Can you tell us about what you were thinking there? What I was thinking there, so the play is called Chinese Boxing. It's using the story of the of the boxer uprising which took place in 1900 and was a very much an anti-foreign movement supported by the government at the time, the Qing dynasty. And the point of the show is to get people to understand this constant, never-ending misunderstanding between China and the West, and Britain especially. And, I mean, yes, it was an anti-foreign movement, which I think is we're seeing an echo of today. In fact, the inspiration for the, for the play was the sort of the cyber army that unofficial cyber army that the government uses to mm. criticize and attack people who say things that they're not happy about about China especially foreigners but also Chinese too the 50 cent gang you've you've heard of yeah. yeah i mean they are a classic example of the government co-opting a sort of popular sentiment but what am i trying to say with the show as i say is that those days, 100 years, uh, over 100 years ago, the Boxer Uprising, there, it was very much a direct conflict in between the West and China. Yet at the same time, on both sides, you had people who understood the other side. The focus of the show is about the siege of the legations in Beijing when all the diplomatic community was, was holed up for 55 days and held on by the skin of their teeth. They only survived because the Chinese were secretly allowing them to survive, the sort of the good guys. And likewise, the foreigners themselves, when I... I think you appreciated when you saw it because we were talking about it earlier. You know, they come across as very anti-Chinese or, or, or sort of them and us imperialist, mm. but actually they were incredibly sympathetic to the Chinese too. And so I think you know the main point is there is within this misunderstanding and this apparent sort of surface conflict, there's a lot of sympathy and understanding between the two sides. I just wish that we. You know, there's more of it. That's very nice. I mean, I think it's very complicated, isn't it? I mean, what's fascinating about this particular episode is that in China, growing up, certainly in schools and stuff, the siege is not what you learn about. The mm. siege of international mm. di- diplomatic delegations is not what you learn about. What you learn about instead is the Bagua Dianjing, mm-hmm. the eight-nation alliance ah. that the siege then needed to um, free them. Uh, yes. But for obvious reasons in Chinese education, is the Bagua Dianjing, the eight-nation alliance, which is these foreigners coming in, kind of invading your country into the heart of Beijing, all of this stuff. So it becomes this, again, a story of the Chinese versus the foreigner and the Chinese being victims again. I mean, Alec, during your time there, it seems to me that... Whenever anything happens between China and the West, the memory of Bagualianjing and the memory of all of these things, even if it's not really felt, even if it's just a gimmick, a mechanism, that that trauma is brought out again. I mean, is that something that you feel Mm. like you've come across as well? Yes, absolutely. Well, I just sort of pick up on the thread of the Boxer Rebellion because Mark mentioned that it has echoes to today. I've actually just been sort of texting back and forth with this contact in Beijing who dropped the reference to the Boxer Rebellion saying that now it's like that again, we're, you know, kicking out the foreigners. And then he called uh, China today, uh, you know, Biguan Suoguo, a closed country, which is a phrase which was used in the Qing mm. before it was forced open by British gunboats. So I think there is an interesting historical analogy here, as our uh, the other venerable China watcher Paul French quotes on his blog, quoting Mark Twain, that history never 
repeats, but it does rhyme. I think there is a real rhyme now with what's happening in China with, you know, 120-odd years ago where the, the nation under Xi Jinping is making a conscious decision to close itself off, to be less opening and welcoming to foreign business and trade and cultural and exchange of people. And so it was interesting to me that this friend in Beijing felt that and he, he went a little bit too far he also told me that he thought this if, is the chinese person this is the chinese guy in beijing I mean, he's just a coder but he uh said that he thought that the bagolian jun was he could understand why they did it because they were but ching provoked the british which i think is maybe a historical step too far yeah not necessarily representative <laughs> of views <laughs> um, but then as you say you know the other historical sort of rhyme that that you see you know much more sort of popularly brought out and really sort of played up on the state media is the century of humiliation and the reminder it's foreigners and foreign involvement who brought China to her knees in Mm. the 19th century and then again in the in the 20th I mean and so putting Japan aside because that's always been a a much stronger undercurrent I'd say than anti-western sentiment I think we are also seeing that historical parallel being explicitly made and accepted by the Chinese population as a sort of justification Mm. for why maybe we don't need to be connected to the world anymore. Do you think any of that historical memory coloured the way that Chinese people interacted with you or dealt with you or met you when you were in China, Mark? I'd like to to tell a nice story, if I may. Yeah, of course. Um, I'd love a nice story. Or a good story. So I moved, the, the village that I went to live in had been founded, built, actually, created out of nothing by missionaries in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And the locals who had continued to live there since 1949 all grew up surrounded by foreigners, basically in a, in a foreign village on a Chinese mountain. Just so happens they also came from the next door province, so they weren't sort of local locals, mm. which adds a slight level of complexity. And I... Like Alec, when you're living in the big cities, got used to being called the Laowai, the outsider. You know, people sort of comment about you right in front of you, thinking you can't understand. It does bring integrate you down, and it is pretty exclusive. It's not very welcoming. And when I arrived to properly live in this village, Morganshan, just about three or four hours west of Shanghai, there was this um, one particular lovely old man who had grown up in a foreign household, he just turned to his whoever was sitting beside him on the wall watching the sunset and go, oh, look, foreigners are back. And it was just, just like nothing to it. <laughs> you know, it's just, this is, you know, they're back. So, you know, it's going back to how it was. And he didn't say, isn't that nice? But it was the implication was that, oh, we got the foreigners back. Let's, you know, hmm. this will all be normal again. We should probably, at this point, complicate what we mean by foreigners. Because mm. China has, has always, of course, been very homogeneous it's never been a, a modern immigrant nation, although you could say that the Manchus and the Mongols were not exactly Chinese. But in terms of, sort of modern China, I think when people would talk about those historical parallels, they're, they're talking about white people. And then there's, of course, a large influx of African population and so on. And then it's complicated further culturally. I'd be interested, in fact, to hear you, Cindy, talk about you know, being British Chinese mm. and perhaps going back to China and people might sort of wonder, well, are you one of us or not? You know, I think foreigner and outsider can mean various different things. Yeah, I mean, 
what's interesting, I think, is in Chinese, China is referred to as just guo, mm. right? I mean, when we're, when we're in the UK, we say we're in the UK, but if you're in China, you'll say you're guo nei, you're within the country. We never say what country it is. And if you're outside of the country, you say you're guo wai. And I think that betrays a certain kind of exceptionalism or just or just putting China front and foremost you know the kind of middle kingdom kind of cliche but Alec actually you know being British Chinese is what made me want to talk to you about this because I've lived in the UK now for 18 years and just two years more than you've lived in China and I would absolutely consider myself to be British and Brits also consider me to be British which mm. I think is the way it should be but What's interesting to me is that, Mark, you suggest that you want to be, at one point you thought you would make your life there, you'd do your work there. And I don't know if you went as far as thinking you could ever be Chinese, but the fact that the Chinese identity did not allow you, someone who was a lifer at that point, to be Chinese. I, I think, I wonder if it's is a British identity that's the exceptional part of this, or is it that China is like a lot of other countries where identity is bound up with ethnicity? I think... Gosh, I wanted it to be... I I think a great example of how that can happen is Hong Kong. The British or the international, whatever you want to call it, community in Hong Kong, it is really their home. They are Hong Kongers. So they are Mm. all but Chinese, especially how Hong Kong is. So uh, I think that's what I was striving for. Yeah. But I think think it is racialized. I do think that the Chinese concept of identity is quite tightly connected to Mm. ethnicity and the colour of your skin. And I think one of the ways that we've seen this in the last sort of 10 years has been a sort of claiming by the Chinese state of ethnically Chinese foreign citizens. Mm. You know, sometimes state media trots out this phrase, Zhonghua Arnu, the sons and children yeah, of China. Yeah, which, which I am, even though I'm a British citizen, I can never not British, be. But you're British. I know, I can you, never you, not you be know, Chinese, and, 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 and they, you can never be Chinese. And, and they said it, they said it of the US um, ambassador who was ethnically Chinese. And so, so it's, sort of, it's both an exclusion of people who do not look Chinese and a claiming of people who are not Chinese citizens. They, they just have their you know, diaspora or whatever. And it's a sort of muddying of the waters. And uh, you mentioned the sort of semantics of Guanay and sort of inside the country. And, and another one which anyone, you know, especially a gringo who has left China knows, is that you're sometimes you overhear, you eavesdrop some Chinese on the tube. And they would talk about, you know, mm-hmm. that foreigner. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, they're, you're, you're in London. So, you know, um, you're always the, the outsider, even after you've left. Yeah. And I wonder how, how, you know, I don't know if you've thought about this, you know, how this all relates with China's own conception of its own ethnic diversity because of the dozens of ethnic minorities it talks about, of which, you know, people hear a lot about the Uyghurs, but there are dozens of others. And the Han is only one nation. And, and if you were to believe the CCP narrative, everyone is all equally Chinese. But I think what we're seeing is Hanification. But anyway, tell us, Alec. You... I mean, just firstly, I, I think you have to say that that's not what, you know, any... Xinjiang person who's been locked up in a re-education camp or had seen their family, you know, locked up and deprived of basic human rights would say. So, you know, that truth sort of out of the way for, you know, many other ethnic minorities, such as the Baizu minority village where I lived in southwest China, they really are sort of Hanified and Mm. Sinified and sort of very much assimilated in and they preserved some culture and some other intangible culture is is being lost in sort of capitalism as much as Hanification. And sort of within the broader historical context that we've been alluding to, I, I, I don't want to veer too much into sort of pop history. It's not really my grounds, but I think there is this 
idea within China that if you enter China as a quote-unquote foreigner, outsider, or are sort of co-opted into the Chinese emperor as it expands, sort of amalgamated in, then I think the idea is that you change we don't change. Mm. Um, in that's the way that the they, Mongols and the exactly. Manchus Exactly. Well, found. that's what the Chinese historians like to say, at least, about so the Yuan dynasty. So maybe you can become Chinese. Uh. Well, he certainly <laughs> well, wants to. Well, you just make it high um, enough. <laughs> yeah. I in, funny, I was talking about Xinjiang. I was inside. I did a, a long road trip around Xinjiang just before we came out to England in 2013. And I was at a cash point, one of the very few cash points in Xinjiang, in a small town called Ruoqiang. And it was sort of dusky, so maybe that's why. I took out some cash, turned around, and there was a very hand Chinese chap behind me, obviously a local, you know, one of those civil servants that had been mm. sort of moved up there to, to govern, basically. And he looked up at me and said, so which ethnic minority are you from? <laughs> I sometimes do that when people ask me in China. I say I'm Weizu, I say I'm Uyghur, because you, you see some just absolutely milk-white people from, I from Kazakhstan. I an excuse yeah. for my terrible tonal Chinese. <laughs> so I speak like a Xinjiang man. <laughs> Actually, Alec, it's in Yunnan province, it's in Kuoming, the capital of that province, that I saw the most bizarre thing that I thought I've ever seen in my life, which is this ethnic minority theme mm. park. Have you been oh. to that one? I have. It used to be, the official English title of it used to be Racist Park. That's what you would see on the sign, on the English sign. I think Welcome they changed that by the park. time I was they, they've, ch- they've changed it, but, you know, as, as, as you saw, you go from sort of quadrant to quadrant and you know this is the Xinjiang people and yeah, this is the yeah. Tibetan people. And what's incredible is that they had actual members of these ethnic minorities living in the park like mm-hmm. a zoo. I mean yeah, they were obviously treated as people, yeah, they weren't yeah. treated behind cages yeah. or anything like that but and some it of them was aren't the extra- main incredibly... Some of them are Han and no, they just right. dress It was incredibly voyeuristic. And I mean, me as a Han person, and when I went, you know, one of the gimmicks that the park had was dressing up as an ethnic minority, and I felt oh, yeah. so uncomfortable. Oh, it, that happens all the time in this sort of place where I, I lived, that sort of tourists would come and hire costumes and then take pictures dressed as this. And I'm trying to think of a sort of parallel. Imagine going to uh, Vancouver or Portland and dressing up as a Native American with a sort of axe and a headdress and taking pictures that's basically what it is so that's i mean it's it's an interesting trend isn't it and i think it ties into that sort of popular imagination that i was alluding to that sort of that you see every year at chunwan the um uh, spring festival gala on tv where you have a lot of dancing ethnic minorities and it's sort of a sort of look at the happy minorities Mm. they have been assimilated into Mm. into the nation i think the obvious point also is it's exactly what the british did you know in our empire and sometimes when i go to those chinese museums or shows of the sort of ethnic culture it reminds me a little bit of places like the pit rivers museum in oxford one of my favorite museum and it's sort of like oh look at all of the sort of little objects from our sort of our our colonies it's so you know we did it too Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess just to wrap up, Alec and Mark, and do you think, what does this mean then, if we are seeing in China, you know, aside from the intra-China identities that we, we just talked about, what does it mean for China to lose the kind of, the foreigners, people like yourselves, who have gone there over the last few decades since reform and opening? Does that change the Chinese culture, Chinese mindset, Chinese politics? And also, I think, you know, Alex, something that you were talking to me about before we went on air was just how you know people don't really know what's happening on the ground in China anymore because journalists like myself can't get in during this particular moment and a lot of journalists that I do know have left semi-permanently I guess the question is what does that mean for the near future of China 
Well, there are still you know, foreigners in China, quite a lot of them. I was having you know, drinks with a bunch of them just a few weeks ago and you know, doing interesting things. And I think the journalistic community has really been thinned out, and that's very sad to see by no fault of their own and, and sort of have had to decamp to um, Seoul and Taipei and Singapore and, and so forth. And I think that's just the state of sort of foreign affairs right now. There has been a thinning of business communities as well. Media is a lot more difficult to do. You couldn't do a kitto now um, <laughs> in today's China. And I think that is, you know, a broad trend. The impression I got from Beijing, though, was that um, a lot of these forces are in hibernation mm. rather than uh, dead. So do you think the pandemic is the main factor here? If, if and when zero COVID ends, people will go back? Broadly, I, I wouldn't expect this sort of trend line politically to change in the next uh, decade. It's always been the case that foreigners have come and gone from, mm. from, from China. But uh, now I think that it's, it's sort of noticeable just for the sort of way it's, there's less attraction than there used to be. Mm. When I went in 2008, everyone wanted to get to China. It was so exciting. And the 90s, I think it was less on the map. It was more mm. unusual to go to China then but it was you know it was a boom nation now just for sort of the way that people talk about it here well firstly as you say obviously when you're there it's just you know people living and going about their lives mm. and doing interesting things you know surrounding these circumstances so it's still a very vibrant and an interesting place to be but i think it's it's lost some of that sort of attraction that it had you know even a, even a decade ago because there's less sort of pull for foreigners to be able to mm. make their mark on it or just get a J visa or something. Mm. I think the problem at the moment is that with China and the outside is that Xi Jinping particularly and the party itself is claiming, you know, they're saying we're going to return China to our rightful place on the world stage, let's say. And yet when China did have, you know, was a superpower as it were, the world was very, very different. Mm. The world has moved on. I don't need to explain in which way. And so I, th I don't think the party really understands that. But conversely, in the positive side, you now have so many Chinese who have gone out into the, to the world and they're not just building railways in the American West or doing all that other sort of menial, you know, running laundries or whatever, you know, those cliches. There are highly educated, sophisticated Chinese world citizens. I think it'll take time. I don't think that's going to be an overnight process, but basically, the, you know, the global village idea will eventually come about where there is a genuine sort of engagement between China and, and the West on a sort of level that mm. we like to think know we do within Europe or mm. across the Atlantic but it's going to take time and it'll be very very gradual and insidious and or of course there could be some sort of dramatic political upheaval in China and who knows maybe Taiwan could take over China again that that'd be a reunification that would be it? interesting yeah. wouldn't that be nice <laughs> well you can't close forever but they're certainly giving a good run at it right now well hopefully that changes soon Alec and Mark thank you so much thank you thank Cindy, you, Cindy. And I really do recommend Mark's play, a one-man show about the Boxer Rebellion. To find upcoming dates, go to chineseboxing.co.uk. And thank you very much for listening to Chinese Whispers and for another year of support. We're going to be taking a bit of a Christmas break, coming back next year with more fascinating topics that shed light on the China of the present and the past. 
Thanks for listening.